Hello everyone and welcome to the second episode of the Collective Cast. In this episode we're going to cover two recent developments in Collective Actions. We'll be hearing about the first CPO hearing to have taken place since the Supreme Court's judgment in Merricks. That's Housefeld's trains cases and the partners leading those cases, Anthony Mayton and Luke Stratfield, are going to tell us what we need to know about the four-day hearing that took place in the CAT last week. Second, we're going to be getting the lowdown on a key recent judgment which affects the funding of collective actions as well as how the tribunal how tribunal decisions can be appealed from Nicola Boyle and Luke Grimes, who are also here. So first of all, over to Anthony and Luke to tell us about trains. Thanks, Lucy. I think I'm going to kick off. Um, so just to remind people what trains is about, first of all, it's the case that we and Charles Linden uh, are bringing as effectively joint co-counsel. Um, and broadly, it's about double charge charging to London commuters. Um, it's about boundary fare. So the principle is if you bought yourself a, a travel card, but you also bought yourself a journey going from within the travel zone uh, outside of it, uh, you will likely have paid effectively twice for that journey because it would have been very difficult for you to purchase a boundary zone fare. Um, and the claim is in respect of the double charging uh, that went on for, for many years by Southwestern and Southeastern Railways. Um, Luke and I picked out three points of interest on the case. Uh, the first is around causation, because you'll remember that Merricks was very heavily focused on looking at damage and aggregation of damage. The main fire from the defendants, certainly as I saw it, came on this question of causation, which is effectively how do you deal with causation in a collective claim where it is possible that people may have made individual decisions in respect to a set of circumstances. So effectively what they're arguing was, well, the damage may be common, but the reaction to the damage might have been different by different people. Um, someone might have been have decided actually they weren't interested in the saving at all. Someone might not have had the time to purchase the ticket. And because there are all of these individual circumstances, um, the argument runs, then it's impossible to have a collective claim because you have to prove causation in respect of each individual who sits within the class. Now, of course, if that argument holds good, the reality of that is a very large section of the regime will just be cut away at birth because there are, there are very large, I mean, there are some consumer claims, Merrick's arguably, where the, the issue of causation doesn't come into play. But equally, there are a large number of consumer claims where that issue of, issue of causation would come into, into play and you wouldn't be able to bring a, a collective. Um, and of course, we argued back to that, that there was a there was a sensible approach that could be taken to those issues of, of causation when you were looking at this uh, in a class context. I and mean, I have to say overall, having been urged by the uh, Supreme Court to bring their broad axe to the hearing, the defendants brought a very small pocket knife uh, which they insisted on keeping in their rucksack for most of the hearing. Um, I think even if there had been a horse there waiting to be reshoed, they'd been reluctant to get that small pocket knife out. Um, so not much of the broad axe. Luke? Well, I would agree with that. And that was a very kind of uh, 
a real area of emphasis, particularly for the uh, Council for Southeastern to advance those submissions in his usual forceful terms. Um, but it will be very interesting to see where the cat comes out on these causation points, because, as you say, they'll be so important for the whole regime and for, for other cases that you know come up in the future. Um, another point that we faced and will be faced by other claimant collectives is um, the question of the standard to which you have to make your case at this uh, this juncture. And that's actually been a moving target for us over the course of our proceedings. The, the, the trains proceedings were filed in February 2019 at the time when we were just dealing with the regime and uh, there had been the initial decision in Merricks by the CAT, but there had not been the Court of Appeal decision. And the claim was filed on that basis. And at that point, um, the, the standard to which you had to make your application was sort of as set out in the rules and there had been the Merricks decision, but there wasn't much further colour from the Court of Appeal or the Supreme Court. What we have had over the course of the last two years are uh, two decisions that have developed that standard. Um, the first was the Court of Appeal decision that indicated that the relevant standard that you had to meet was kind of equivalent to a strikeout standard. And then that was when the defendants put in their defences and we saw strikeout applications being made by the defendants on various grounds. And since then, the Supreme Court has clarified the standard yet further and made it clear that the merits will only be considered on a CBO application in relation to the summary judgment or strikeout test. Now that um, was uh, interesting in our proceedings because we saw all the defences that had been made simply to the CBO application being reformulated just before the hearing following the decision of the Supreme Court in Merricks on the basis that they met the summary judgment and strikeout standard. Now, we'll see how we fare in terms of the merits, but I think the take home point for us, for claimants, was that even though the standard may have been clarified, as it stands at the moment, we're likely to see a sort of kitchen sink approach for many defendants, as you might expect, where they'll put in every kind of point that they would have made in relation to certification anyway to the summary judgment strikeout standard and actually will only it'll only be once we get decisions of the cat that clarify how that standards applied in practice that we're going to get a more streamlined procedure because it didn't in our experience at our hearing lead to any streamline streamlining materially of the arguments at all yeah, and I think, Luke, at least for a while, this is going to be standard defence tactics, isn't it? I mean, you're going to see a strikeout reverse summary judgment application inevitably filed to sit alongside a CPO because it's one of the two avenues to get the merits back before the tribunal um, in a way that otherwise you, you wouldn't do. Um, because there was also a little bit of trying to get the merits back before the tribunal, I thought, through, through trying to play the opt-in, opt-out. Uh, you know, notwithstanding that for me, this is clearly an opt-out action given its its nature and there was no opt-in action table before the CAT. You know, we still had um, submissions about differences between opt-in and opt-out, which was, again, I thought was an attempt to get the merits back before the tribunal. 
Yeah, and the fact that that came up in our action, where it really doesn't seem to be the kind of action where opt-in is realistic, seemed just to exemplify that point. Yeah, so I think we're going to see both of those arguments used. It's probably probably strike out more, I suspect, but 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 let's see. Um, the third point we then wanted to, to touch on was the approach to experts. We had um, Derek Holt from Alex Partners, who's the expert for Charles Linden and, our, and ourselves, and the tribunal had indicated um, relatively early doors that they were going to be interested to hear from Derek. Um, so we had probably the best part of two hours from him, but what was interesting about it is um, almost all of the questioning was done not only by the tribunal, but by the economist uh, on the tribunal. And I thought that lended a very different feel to it because you know what it's like when you get cross-examination of, of an expert, it's inevitably, understandably, designed to try and undercut the expert and his, and his or her conclusions. Here, there's a genuine attempt, I think, by the tribunal just to understand the model and what went into the model and, and how it worked and to understand that on the basis, well, this is relatively early doors. Um, you've got a certain amount of data, you might get more data as the, as the process gets on, um, and quite an, edu an, an educating and educative process, I thought. And what was interesting is then when the defendants were offered the chance to ask, not cross-examine, but ask supplemental questions uh, based on the tribunal's questions, they actually all declined to take up that opportunity, um, which I thought was an interesting uh, reflection on the type of process it was. And actually, having seen a lot of cross-examination in my time, I thought it was a very constructive way to go about trying to understand expert evidence. And I suspect it's going to be the modus operandi in the CAT on these hearings. that We're going to see tribunal-led uh, interrogation, and it's going to be generally from the economist on the panel, um, and it's going to be trying to understand the modelling. Luke, I don't know if you want to comment on that. Well, yeah, I thought it was really interesting as a practitioner because there you saw what the cat did with the Supreme Court judgment in Merricks because there had been at the Court of Appeal stage an indication that really the proceedings at the certification stage would be even more limited and there might not be expert evidence called for. The Supreme Court said, no, we can see that could be useful. And what the cat did with that was to take responsibility itself and to say, yes, we want to hear from the expert because we really want to understand this, but place quite tight constraints about how that process was going to was going to proceed. And in the end, the defendants didn't take any opportunity to ask even, as you say, any supplemental questions, still less any kind of cross-examination. Yeah, and it's the real benefit of having a, a specialist tribunal with, with a panel where you've got an expert economist on the panel who's able to better understand and interrogate that. So I, th I thought it really showed the cat in a, in a good light in that context. Um, Lisi, we could probably bang on about uh, trains <laughs> for much, much longer, um, but um, maybe we should should move on and allow Nicola and Luke to say something about the trucks judgment. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's fascinating, those, those points that you've highlighted both. And I have to admit, it is surprising to um, hear the opt-in point coming up in the trains claim, because you've, you wouldn't have, have thought that that should have been raised given the, the nature of, of that claim. Um, well, it's not the most obvious candidate for, for an opt-in action. No, no. And, and do we know when to expect judgment? Well, I, I suspect that the tribunal is going to wait certainly until they listen to Merrick's, which is this week. Um, and I think when they've got the two in sight, then then we may get a judgment, although there are obviously others 
coming coming up up on the rails as well. So whether they'll wait longer, but I think they'll certainly wait for those too. So I think it'll it'll, it'll be weeks at least. Yeah. yeah, as ever, we didn't get a definite uh, indication from the tribunal, but they said it would not be Monday. <laughs> not Monday. Okay. So not Monday. Monday. <laughs> so Monday, Monday has been ruled yeah. out. Okay, great. That's very interesting. Let's move on to the um, the second item that we wanted to discuss, which is the um, the recent judgment, which came up in the trucks collective actions. Um, now, I think this is interesting for, for two reasons, one in relation to litigation funding, but the second in relation to the jurisdiction of the um, Court of Appeal in relation to decisions of the tribunal in collective proceedings. Luke, do you want to um, kick us off on the on the litigation funding point? Absolutely. Thanks, Lucy. Um, yes, as you say, it's, it's a very interesting judgment, um, notwithstanding the various hearings that are now pressing ahead in the cat. So as you say, the first point um, related to the funding issue, and the question was really whether the litigation funding arrangements amounted to damage-based agreements or DBAs. And so th this was very much the substantive issue and appeal. Um, it's an important point because DBAs, of course, are unenforceable. Uh, one, if they do not conform to the DBA regulations. And secondly, if they are in respect of opt-out proceedings. And so the, the finding of the court essentially turned on the interpretation of the DBA regulations and the court made a very helpful demarcation between claims farming on the one hand and on the other hand non-Shampatus litigation funding which is in return for a share of the recovery. Uh, so the court also noted the valuable role of funding in collective claims and those comments are, are also to be welcomed by class reps and litigation funders in equal measure. Um, so I think the, the result of this particular ruling on, on the DBA's point is that it's very much a case of keep calm and carry on. I think the judgment was very much expected, but it's nevertheless helpful to have this confirmed at a sort of appellate court level. So that's the, the, the first issue in the judgment. Um, the second issue is, is, I think, perhaps more interesting. And this DBA issue came up um, in, in respect of judicial review proceedings rather than court of appeal proceedings um, and it therefore turns on a question of procedural jurisdiction and this is this became an issue because of the wording of section 49 in the competition act uh, which sets out broadly that an appeal may proceed on a point of law as to the award of damages or other sum and so much of the judgment actually relates to this point and not the former dba issue so taking a, a step back the tribunal originally determined that the defendants had no jurisdiction uh, to bring an appeal and that's because the its decision on funding was a decision not, not a decision on the award of damages and so that has to be contrasted with uh, other judgments of the tribunal such as in Enron and Merricks and uh, Merricks for example where the Court of Appeal previously held that it did have jurisdiction to appeal its judgment. So in this judgment, the court uh, effectively rejected an argument by the defendants that the wording of Section 49 should be construed widely. Uh, it held that Section 49 only relates to a decision um, from which an appeal may be brought and not of the proceedings as a whole. Uh, defendants also tried to raise an alternative point uh, that the tribunal's judgment would have been determinative. But the court held that the approval of funding arrangements in collective proceedings only forms one part of the various issues to be considered as part of certification. 
And that's obviously, obviously a very important point, because had the court determined it the other way, then it would have been um, open for class reps to reconsider the, the funding structure. So I think the upshot of that is that there, there was no jurisdiction for the Court of Appeal to hear the appeal. Section 49 was not triggered. Um, so it's a very helpful judgment in setting the boundaries on procedural jurisdiction. Yeah. So, Luke, it's, it was a, an interesting question for the points to come because we saw in Merrick's where they said effectively when you're deciding a CPO against the class rep, it's a sort of end of the road decision. And that seemed to be where the court was going, whether, whereas there ex seems to be an acceptance that there's some flexibility when the court's looking at funding um, and other conditions regarding the, the class rep as opposed to the claim itself. Um, and so I, I guess it's encouraging in some ways because one of the challenges at the moment in the cases is going to be avoiding multiple appeals on different issues um, at this early stage. And so, as you say, it's hopefully an indication that um, the, the tribunal and the appeal courts will exercise some, some discretion to try and avoid that. Yeah, and I think so just going going back a step, because there was a view, wasn't there, Nicola, that um at the sort of at the outset of the regime that tribunal decisions would only be challengeable by judicial review. And I think it was the, the Merrick's case um that went to the Court of Appeal that that changed that. And then you had the language around the um as to an order of damages. Yeah, that's right, Lucy. And there was a some thinking on whether what you were trying to avoid was a regime that the, the CPO stage itself just took years and years to get to in every case because we faced multiple appeals on every single decision. Mm -hmm. And if you think about it, um, you know, defendants, as we've just heard on trains, are likely to take every point they can at an early stage to, to try and um, avoid, avoid the action going ahead. And so I think this was a test as to whether are we actually, is there any threshold left or does it mean any decision can be appealed? But I think they've tried to to row back from that and to say, um, you know, certainly these procedural ones that aren't a final decision on certification um, shouldn't be capable of being appealed. That does leave the question, I think, of um, what happens in a in a claim where um, the claim is certified, um, which which gives you um, a, a separate scenario that hasn't yet arisen. Yeah. Okay. So an interesting judgment, and I think fair to say, a topic that will become um, all the hotter as um, as more more claims are, are heard. And so, so that decision um, was in the context of the trucks collective claims. So that CPO hearing, I think, is at the uh, some point in April. Um, yeah, that's right, Lucy. And so this this had arisen actually during the stay for Merricks, where a preliminary issue had been taken on the funding. Yeah. And so that, that point was actually taken before the main CPO hearing, which has, has yet to follow. Yeah, OK. So, so if we've got that one coming up in April and then, as Anthony said, we've got the, um, the, the Merricks CPO hearing later this week, I think. Um, yep, that's that's right. And so, as Anthony said, it will be interesting to see um, how the cat sequences its judgments um, as it's going to have a fairly busy time over the over the next few weeks. Yeah. Um, and I think the the trucks one to come has the interesting dynamic of the opt in opt out dynamic with claims being brought under both um, sections of the regime. Yeah, yeah, 
yeah, some interesting um, hearings coming up. I think it's it's fair to say. And of course, there was the um, the maritime car carriers um, claim as well. The CMC on that one was on uh, Friday last week, I think. And I I think that the CPO hearing's been listed for later in the year. So uh, the cat's diary is, as we predicted, getting busier and busier. Um, but I think that's been a useful canter through to two recent developments. Um, and we can hopefully look forward to hearing more when we hit episode three, episode four, episode five in the um, weeks and months to come. But thank you very much to Anthony, Nicola and to the two Lukes for, for joining us on that one. Thanks very much, Lucy. Good to speak. Thanks, Lucy.